Thank you so much, Pastor Kenner, for leading us in our time together. This is a new experience, and we thank you all for tuning in to our live stream. For those who are sitting at home, you may not realize that all who are serving you, beginning with Doris and the musicians and the singers, and uh, Kenneth, we are all speaking, singing to an empty hall. And so if we have made any mistakes, we ask for your understanding, because we are doing this for the second time. The first time was just uh, a trial run last week, and so we pray that God's uh, Spirit will guide us and empower us. Our lives are full of defining moments. And defining moments is when we see people and we see things differently. So, no, no unknown to you and me, your life and my life is full of defining moments. I always knew that my wife loves food, but I didn't know how much until I saw this. Then I realized she loves food a lot. <laughs> And so, was there a defining moment that was actually on our day off? We went to a wonderful restaurant in Little India, and this is just the paper tose, which we highly commend that you have. And then defining moments may come when we experience something that, has, that we have never gone through in life. And here is a picture of my, one of my grandnieces who came from Australia. And a defining moment when she came to our house and she overcame, she overcame her fear of dogs. And as you look at the picture of my dog, how could anyone fear that small thing? But for a child, different children, we all have different fears of different things around us. And so that became a defining moment for her. And she was so proud of herself during that time, after dinner, she just kept talking and talking because when you overcome something, especially a fear, that becomes something you'll never forget for the rest of your days. So, by the time we arrive at Genesis chapter 5, we arrive at what I call true defining moments. And what are true defining moments? True defining moments is when we see God and then we see ourselves in the image of God, in reflection of God, Him telling us who we are and what our purpose is, and then we see our life differently. And from that moment on, we are never the same again. And so when you hit Genesis chapter 5, we find ourselves in a true defining moment a true defining moment as we read through a very strange chapter of the Bible. It's what we call a genealogy of family tree. And this is how it reads. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them men when they were created. So if you're listening to this at home, you may want to read together with me for engagement. Verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his own image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh 
were 905 years. And as you sit there or you tune in listening to this, you're wondering to yourself a very important question, how long are we going to go on with this? Because I already know the story. Do we know the story? The storyline seems to be this. The defining moment for all of us, it is the defining moment for all of us anywhere, regardless of place and time, race, age, is when death comes knocking at our doors, when death comes looking for us. And in the first family tree of the first family, Adam's family, for want of a better pun, Adam's family, death came knocking at their doors. And so as we go down this whole chapter, as we go down this whole chapter, here is a summary. The repetition and then the lesson. When A, beginning with Adam, had lived X number of years, then he fathered B. And then it goes on, A lived X, Y years, uh, he lived Y years after he fathered B. All the, day, all the years of, day, of A were X and Y. I'm getting lost myself. Let me say that third line. All the days of A were X and Y. And the punchline we mustn't miss. And then he died. No matter how long, no matter how short, death came knocking at their doors. And so a summary is why does death come looking for us? Death comes looking for us as we read Genesis 1-5 to when men and women rebel against God. When men and women sin against God, and instead of listening to God say to us, you shall do it my way, we listen to the serpent say to us, you shall not surely die. When God said, if you eat of the tree of knowledge in good and evil, you will surely die. Recorded in Genesis 2.17. And so, why does death come knocking on our doors? It's because of a rebellion against God. And so from that point onwards, recorded in Genesis 3, and now fulfilled in the family, family line of Adam, we find that sin and sickness, aging, decay, disease, and finally death becomes our defining experiences. Isn't it? Day by day passes, but it is the sin, a very bad quarrel that you have with your husband or wife, a very bad sin against your sibling that we saw with Cain, being angry at his brother and then finally murdering his brother that became defining in his life, a sickness in your family that took your father or mother, I was just speaking to a church member two weeks ago and after the service and just talking about her life and every time I've met her, the moment she mentions the passing away of her mother, which is a while ago, she tears up. We never get used to, it, to this. And so sin and sickness and aging and finally death becomes our defining moments. We remember the year in which a loved one passed on. And so this is part of the whole storyline. Genesis 1, beginnings of the universe. Genesis 2, beginnings of men and women. Genesis 3, the beginning of sin as Adam and Eve turned against God and chose to be wise in their own eyes, chose to be independent, chose to be proud, chose to be, in, uh, to be autonomous, decoupled their life from God. Didn't matter what they thought, didn't matter what they did, so they thought. 
with great repercussions. Genesis 4, the beginnings of family sin, and in Genesis 4, that first singular death, the death of Abel at the hands of his angry brother Cain. By Genesis 5, it is now death everywhere. A little bit delayed in the whole account, but death everywhere as they face, as they trace Adam's family tree. Life and death. So, when we summarize this portion in Genesis chapter 5, Adam lived 130 years plus 800, 920, then came Seth, then came Enosh, then came Kenan, then came Mahalalel, then came Jared, Enoch, Metashalel, Lamech, Noah. The two lines, the two persons, and the two lines that are bold there are the people who break the pattern. The pattern of what? The pattern of life, and for Enoch, no death. And then the pattern of life for Lamech and Noah, his son, and let's see what happens. So, who breaks the pattern of death? Recorded for us in Genesis chapter 5. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch, thus all the days of Enoch was 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was no more, for God took him. For God took him. The key word there is walk with God. Walk with God is a term of intimacy. Walk with God is a term of endearment. How many of you go walking with your enemies? You are very unusual. Most times we go walking. So Mona, my wife, has been a little bit under the weather, and so we are a bit under the weather during this period of time around the world. We're told to take a little bit more care. And so over the last two weeks, she hasn't been able to go with me for walks. So every day I ask her as I wake up or in the evening, are you, are you okay enough to go for a walk? Because I miss her company. This is the figurative language of the spiritual truth. The figurative language of the spiritual truth of what? That between Enoch and God, whatever we do not know, there was intimacy, there was endearment, he walked with God, he was obviously a man who lived by God's word, and because of that, he was no more. Death wasn't his destiny. A first signal that it is our relationship with God that determines whether we live or die, spiritually and physically. Two deaths that the Bible speaks about. It is the quality of our relationship with God. It is the existence or the non-existence of our relationship with God that determines whether we live or we die. Spiritual and physical deaths. A first sign of it in the Bible. And then the next one who breaks the pattern is Lamech. Lamech had lived 182 years. He fathered a son and called him Noah. And the Hebrew word actually means rest, saying that out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring relief, literally comfort. And why is that so important? It tells you that Noah has something to do with what God had pronounced, his curse upon the ground, comfort from our work and from the painful toll of our hands. And so, and so, we get the first inkling of what? Both in Enoch and in Lamech, Lamech's son, Noah, there is a hope for rest, for comfort, 
for the destiny and experience that all of us face, death. And so where does that take us? It takes us to Genesis 5, through Enoch and to Noah, that God has a plan to smash death, to destroy death in Adam's line. That sin and death will not be the last word in our life. And if you trace it down Cain's line, Adam, down Cain, it ended with Lamech, the seven in that line, from Adam through Cain to Lamech. He's a killer. And he boasts about his killing a man. And he says, I will avenge myself 70 times 7. But when you trace the other line of Adam with the birth of Seth that replaces Abel and you end up with 10 and 7 and 10 in biblical numerology are numbers of perfection or numbers of completeness. 7 perfection, 10 completeness. And so the 10 in Seth's line is actually a deliverer. And I think that is perhaps the intentionality of the writer. How many more descendants did he skip or put in? We do not know. But he arranged the material under God to present us that there are two lines of men, a godless line that lives in wonderful autonomy against God. Wonderful because as you remember from Genesis 4, if you didn't tune into it, go listen to our sermon last week, how Cain and his line live in rebellion against God and didn't show any effects of godlessness. And then finally we come to Seth and his line. And now we come to Noah, the thin, and we are told that he would, his name is Rest and he will bring comfort from all the painful toll of life. I do not know what the last week has been like for you around the world as you tune into this. In Singapore, in Singapore and around Asia, we'll speak more about it at the end, we are hit by this thing called COVID-19. And surely by the sweat of our brow we are eating, and day by day we live with danger and risk. Then we jump to the New Testament that tells us about Jesus and how does Genesis 5, in what way is it linked to Jesus? It's so far away. And in Luke chapter 3, Jesus' genealogy, Jesus' family tree begins this way, verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi. And it just goes on, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, and that's the, the pattern in every family tree. And then we fast forward to verse 36, where it starts to look familiar in the context of Genesis 5. The son of Shem, the son of Noah, that sounds familiar. The son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, and here is where it jumps out at us. The son of Seth, the son of Adam. Notice Cain is, is skipped, deliberately skipped. And the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So what was being written was the first echoes of a promise. 
the first echoes of a promise that your and my experience of sin, sickness, aging, and finally death, the slippery road to the grave for every single one of us, and no one is going to escape this, the slippery road to death will finally be reversed in the descendant of Noah. And his name is Jesus. By his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, Jesus takes the wrath of God, forgives us of sin, and makes us the children of God. Because he came and lived his life in total obedience to God. And so he becomes the second Adam who reverses the work of the first Adam who led us into rebellion and a whole world of three Ds, decay, disease, and finally death. And so Romans 5 that we read for our responsive reading picked it up this way. For while we were still weak, at the right time, what did Jesus Christ do? Christ died for the ungodly. And who on earth are the ungodly? Paul would have told us in Romans 1 to 3 that all of us are the ungodly. He actually gives us a few more terms in Romans 5, verse 6 onwards. We are ungodly, we are sinners, and we are enemies of God. And verse 10 picks it up. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life? So I want to ask everyone tuning in, right? How many of you got enemies in life? Or maybe should I ask, how many enemies do you have? We all have enemies. And sometimes it may begin with our siblings in our own family, as Cain had in the person of Abel. Not that Abel did anything to him, but he didn't like what Abel was doing. So how, how many enemies do we, do we have? And if you have enemies in your heart and my heart, in your home and my home, and sometimes it's, family enemies, where you will not go and visit this family over Chinese New Year, where you will not go and visit this family over Christmas, you will not go and visit this family in any occasion, period, though you are relatives. Maybe the only time you ever meet is at the funeral itself. And um, you can ask Pastor Jeff and the pastors who go and do our bereavement ministry, sometimes we go and do the funerals and two families from the one father or the one mother, finally meet when all these years they have lived as enemies, as two separate families, and they finally meet there. So what will bring about reconciliation? Reconciliation between enemies is humanly impossible. True reconciliation that turns hatred into love, that turns a barrier into a bond, is humanly impossible. But he says here, it is by the love, the suffering, the atoning death, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ that we have been reconciled to God. I just want to drive home the point about what Paul is saying here. It's what we call the harder and easier gospel logic. And the harder and easier gospel logic is if God has done the harder thing, and actually, I should put not the comparative word there, but the superlative. If God had done the hardest thing, which is to reconcile us to Him while we were still proud, 
while we were still His enemies, while we were still sinners, will He not do the easier thing? Because after reconciling us, it's as if the mental picture, He's now reconciled us, forgiven us, invited us. He says, come and have a dinner with me. Come and have a banquet with me. Come and walk with me. Come, I'll show you my inheritance. Come, I'm going to will some of my inheritance to you. If God has done that to former enemies, through the finished work of Jesus Christ, now that you put faith in Jesus, will He not do the easier thing? Will He not save you in the end when He returns? And when He returns, if you put faith in Christ, you are now His children. If He could reconcile you while we, he, we were still His enemies, surely He can save you now because now we are His children. And here's the tremendous promise of the gospel. This is how death comes to an end. And so, if this storyline is true, it's what we call biblical theology as we read from Genesis 5 and trace it to its, from its promise to its fulfillment, promised by God to His fulfillment in His Son, the Lord Jesus. God's most precious gift to us is not when I get a boyfriend, I get a girlfriend, that's on your behalf if you're single. Right? I, get a, uh, I get married, I, I get, I've got children, those are wonderful blessings. Uh, I've got a promotion. I, I've got a posting overseas. God's greatest blessing to us is the person of Jesus Christ coming in love for us. That is where the life giver comes looking for us, offering us life. And unless Jesus comes as the life giver for us, death will keep coming to look for us and when death knocks at your door and my door, it has a 100% success rate. And when death knocks at your door and my door with a 100% success rate, all we live, in, live with is actually hopelessness. So that is why when we connect up the story, it's a wonderful thing. So the greatest defining moment in the whole human history, right, the whole human history is when God finally sent His Son to love us, suffer for us, die on our behalf, absorb God's wrath, take our penalty of death, reverse it by His resurrection, and then promise us eternal life when He returns again and takes us into His presence physically. So the Bible tells us there are two groups of people. We may be wise in our own eyes, we become fools in God's eyes, we become fools in God's eyes when, like in Genesis 4, in Cain's line, they build tall, glittering, glittering cities and they try to hide, they try to cover up that this line lives in rebellion against God. It's a line of men and women who proudly laugh off sin, laugh off sickness and death. And we think as long as we don't talk about these things, I'm a sinner, Somebody is terminally ill in hospital. As long as we can delay talking about these things, it, we might not even face it in our lives. That is foolishness in God's eyes. But the ones who are considered wise in God's eyes is to accept our true spiritual condition when we live autonomous lives against God, when we choose to decouple our lives from God, we shall surely die. 
And so, in ending, in the next 10-15 minutes, as we see the implications of this, the obedience of the disobedience of this God's truth to us in His Word and His Son, I want to ask before we move on to the next point, are you a fool in God's eyes? That you're living your life pretending that, that there is no such thing called sin, there's no such thing called sickness and death, and maybe if we could send everyone who is aging and dying in Singapore to JB, Batam and Bintan, to old folks' home there, then maybe we won't be touched by this. No, friends, we cannot pretend this away. And so COVID, this coronavirus, the latest outbreak, whether you call it an epidemic, whether it will grow to a pandemic, is a defining moment, a defining moment where death is propelled or catapulted into our experience and every day you and me risk getting infected and possibly dying from this. And ever so often in human history, as you look back, God will do this. He will catapult and propel death on a global level so that you and me are reminded we are living outside His presence, we are living against His purposes. And no matter how much progress we make, we are all going to age, get disease and die. So when was the last time death got propelled into your very face and life changed for you? When was the last time this happened? So I read and tell the story now of a 14-year-old boy in Australia. And he's studying in boarding school because his family has a farm in the, the countryside. And so he has to go to boarding school. And he's on a break from boarding school, I, I'm told, uh, as I read and understand this correctly. He comes back for a holiday. And he comes back for a holiday to his huge farm. He plays a game of cricket with his father. And his sister, younger sister, is just sitting there, right, watching them out in the open field. And the father is bowling. You know, in cricket, somebody bowls, the other person bats. And if you, you win, runs by batting the ball as far as possible. And if it's played in a cricket ground, if you, if you bat well, right, you hit the ball well, it goes over the fence, we call it a six. And so the, the father bowl, and then he hit it. The son hit it this 14-year-old, it, it was a good smash. And they could see it going for what we call a six. That means if it goes over the fence, it's counted as six runs. Right? Six runs. And as they saw it go, so did his sister. And she saw it coming at her. She turned her back. She couldn't move fast enough. It hit her in the neck. It broke her neck and she died instantaneously. That man's name is John Anderson, who then became the Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. He hardly talked about this, but in the recent years, he's talked about it a lot more. John Anderson, that incident in his life, face to face, when death of his younger sister at his very own hands, death got propelled and catapulted into his very experience. It changed his life. It changed his life. 
He went on to become a good Christian, stood up for his convictions, and then resigned as Deputy Prime Minister, went back to his farm, and started to minister to people by just setting up a, a website, just Conversations with John Anderson. And in this Conversations with John Anderson, basically it is a platform for him to share the difference with life with God, life without God. Life with God, life without God. And for him, even through this tragedy, his faith in God and Jesus as his Lord and Saviour deepened. You can live, read the stories, and there are many, but I give you just one link. And there he is in the middle between the Prime Minister then, John Howard, and Peter Costello. And they call John Anderson the most handsome politician of that time. Understandably so. I met John in various settings, first time during my sabbatical in Brisbane, and then when he came to conferences here. A wonderful, lovely man of God, a true brother in Christ Jesus. And this is what he said. I often thought to myself, it's awful when tragedy strikes, like in my case, my sister's death. But there's no doubt it of, it's often through deep personal suffering and trauma that we are brought to our, your senses and made to realize that you need answers to life. It's not enough just to say we are in some sort of glory, we are some sort of glorified ape wandering through life on a planet out of control. So, in that sense, it probably saved me from myself. It saved him from all the atheism, all the evolution, all the Western worldviews out there. It is often true a tragedy, often true when death is catapulted into our very experience and in our face, that we ask, what is life and what is death? What is life and what is death? And so John Anderson is no stranger to suffering. For when he was three years old, his mother died. He grew up with a father who went to World War II. And the father suffered post-traumatic stress disorder. And he would wake up. He remembers, John Anderson remembers waking up. His father waking up and, and, and calling out still things of the battlefield. Battlefield. Save me. Help me. I'll be there. Saving, saying to mates. All those things. And finally, the death of his sister. He set up this website and the first podcast had a million viewers tune in. And it was his opportunity from now on to keep talking about the life giver, the life giver. And sometimes the young people who tune in, the people who tune in are young Australians who have lost their way with postmodernism and atheism, that wonderful fashionable thing that is so wrong to believe in Christ in Christianity. It's so wrong to believe in God as a simple answer to life. And one wrote to him, a young boy, or the father wrote in his bar, that something went wrong. This other young boy playing with his mates, and then there was a tragic accident, and this boy's life was spiralling out of control. What do you think John did? John invited this young teenager, together with his father, to come and stay with him at his farm. His wife was away, his wife Julia was away, John's wife was away. And then to help this boy recover from the death of his mate, the death of his friend, which he was devastated by and had 
started to make all his relationships go wrong, beginning with his father, John walked him to the very spot and explained to him how the accident happened. And then he bent over to that young teenager and said to him, the way I'm telling you this story, the way I'm recalling this story, I've never told it this way, even to my wife. And the reason I'm doing so is to tell you that you are not alone in the experience of death. You are not alone in the experience of death. Isn't that a wonderful gospel statement? For there is no better Jesus statement than that. For if you ever, ever doubt, you ever question, why Jesus? You ever doubt, why did He come? It is so that you will not face death alone, the whole human race and each and all of us. It is Jesus who goes before us, rises before us. And so what does that mean for you and me? So when the life giver has come looking for us, we should not go looking for death. What do I mean by that? Sometimes as we live without God in this world, we become a bit purposeless, we become a bit nihilistic, right? No purpose to live. And I've told this story many times of these three friends in Western Australia, I think in Perth, and three teenagers one day together with their friend, four of them, right? They were so bored with their teenage lives because boring or boredom is the number one word of the millennial generation. You ask, how is life? Boring. How was that? Uh, I was going to say, how was that service? Boring. How was that sermon? Boring. How was your school? Boring. Everything is boring. And so they decided to put some excitement in their life and they wondered among themselves, we wonder what it's like to kill somebody. And one day after school, they went to their friend's house. As they sat on the sofa, they actually implemented this. They pulled out some wire from the hi-fi, got behind her, strangled her to death. And so that was the experience of it. You can Google the story. I hope I don't remember it wrongly. And when it went up to the court case, the judge and everyone, uh, this is an expression of possessed, when we are possessed with nothingness, with purposelessness, because we say to ourselves, there is no God. If there's no God, there's no beginning. There is no ending. If there's no beginning, there's no ending because there's no God. There is no meaning in between. So might as well kill boredom any way you want because every day, what you and I are doing is just killing time, killing boredom. That's all we do. It's a staggering case. And sometimes some of us wake up to seasons like that and we are looking for death because we are bored to death. That's the English saying, I'm bored to death. And so we become nihilistic or suicidal. And so we, if we know from the Genesis account to Jesus and Revelation, that God created us, life is precious. Death comes knocking because of rebellion. But Jesus comes knocking as the life giver. So life is precious and now redeemed life is even more precious. And so we have decided to suspend our services and many of our ministries over the next two weeks. Because the principle that I spoke about, wrote about and posted on Facebook for us, from Galatians chapter 5 verse 6, Faith in God must always cascade into love for each other. Beginning with love 
for fellow believers. So if we have faith in God and have love for believers, we do not go recklessly and say, let's go looking for death. Because life is precious, created by God, and life is precious, more precious, redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And so why we chose the substantial services is because of our love for God's people. That maybe above the average church in Singapore, we have a higher percentage of children, God has blessed us over the last 30 years. On paper, about 800 to 1,000. Six, 700 attend our children's church every week, over five services, which means we have a high proportion of families. And then there's a new term now, coin, and buzzing around, at least in Singapore, the increasing concern of our government and authorities about cross-institutional risks. And the cross-institutional risks when students from different schools mix, and this virus, which is so contagious, definitely more contagious as a fact now than SARS, the risk of infection grows. And then cross-cross uh, what did I say? Institutional risk. It's also been instituted in our hospitals and more and more so. And so we know from yesterday, at least released today, is the National Council of Churches statement that says or suggests that our services should continue. It came after we had made our position. And so some of you listening to this will be asking, so if the NCCS says this, should we then bounce back? May I say that prayerfully, lovingly, wisely, it's still a statement. It's still a suggestion. It's not a law. It's not a commandment. It's not a decree. And each of us, beginning with our members and our pastors, have to prayerfully think of the unique people demographic that God gives us and the unique responsibilities and the unique risks that we, each one of us, will run. If things go wrong and there's an outbreak of a church cluster, I'm not sure whether anyone else out there will be responsible for this, both for the infection and the sickness and possible death. But I know as the pastor, as a senior pastor, together with my pastoral team and my elders and deacons, we will be responsible. So I think in wisdom, we will carry out what we have prayerfully decided to suspend our services for over the next two weeks. And we've given you an e-bulletin. And the e-bulletin has two more things, the John Piper Conference that's coming up in March and our Just for Newcomers, which means that everything else is presumed, if it's not highlighted in our e-bulletin, is presumed suspended over the next two weeks. And I pray that you understand it flows from our understanding of God, our accountability and responsibility to Him and to you, that faith in God and love for the saints are not to be decoupled. And so, when the life giver comes looking for us, when the life giver comes looking for us, we go looking for life. And so we may not be able to meet in physical church building, right? And so you read it in Acts chapter 2. Every day they met together in the temple courts and in the homes. But somewhere along the line, when they are no longer allowed to meet in the temple courts because the first Jewish Christians faced persecution, they met in homes. So house churches have always been part 
of God's gospel work over the last 2,000 years. And sometimes through a period of persecution, not sickness, the church in some countries have gone, have to go underground. So we are in a time of a health risk, a health scare, a global one, a national one. And it's a wise thing for us to move from a centralized church building to our house churches. And what can we do? We can take this opportunity as families. You know what we struggle with all around the world, but maybe more here in Singapore? We are very time poor, so little time for ourselves. Long days at school, long days at work, and then relationship poor and love poor, so little time. But during this time in which our services and our ministry suspended, you have extra time, Saturday, Sunday, to go and do what? To enjoy each other, mainly out there, at the park, out there, go and enjoy creation, right? And so then you become rich in Christ and rich in love. And just to, just to say that I'm trying to live this out, I go for a walk every day. And so I live here near the Botanic Gardens, and two days ago I went for a walk in the Botanic Gardens. There was no one there. And then I saw a beautiful bird. Can you recognize that bird? It's a beautiful kingfisher. I pity you, you didn't see that. I saw that bird in the flesh, or should I say in the feathers. Live. It's beautiful when you go out there and you are recreate, reconnected with the Creator to creation. And then it carried on. Day by day I walk. And just to show you on the right-hand side is a wonderful photo taken by a wonderful journalist of the world. No, friends, it's me with my iPhone. Just to tell you that this morning, right, I went for a walk at, uh, at Labrador. And there were a lot more people there. As I walked, I saw a father right, with his young son, maybe three, four years old, he had a helmet, and so as I walked past them, and the son was going on one of those, uh, what, kid scooter, right, and the father was instructing him how not to fall off, I said, how come dad doesn't have a helmet, and they both laughed, and then I saw a couple, and kids, maybe five, six years old, all decked out with paintbrushes and all, obviously going to the beach to paint a scene, I thought, that's so wonderful, right, so why do we do that? People of God, in NRPC, in any church, regain your wow of God by regaining your wow of creation your, and wowing at creation from kingfishers to, to birds to, to, to plants will get you there. And just to prove that it's improving my family life, I brought my son along and his smile is a little bit stiff, but never mind. Um, and so we reset our life, we reset our marriages, we reset our families, and the dog loves it. So tomorrow is going to be a free day for many of us. Maybe next weekend too. You've got a lot more time at night. Let's enjoy this. When we do house church, when we can read God's Word together, when we can pray together and deepen our devotion to God and deepen our devotion to one another. And so, as we end our time, this is a wonderful opportunity for us to be in Christ, loving and creative. Let us not forget. And here's a word and a prayer for our own at the forefront, at the forefront of battling this illness and the risks of infection, or even worse. And so, I've gotten many things in terms of messages, and here's one. Dear Pastor Chris, thanks for your faithful leadership in times of crisis. Last Saturday, I skipped Saturday service as I was exhausted after a very busy day at work. This is the doctor. 
On Sunday morning, I was at work when I received news from a DG leader that live streaming at ARPC was available, but I couldn't tune in as I had patients to attend to. Finally got round to watching it in the evening and was so amazed how ARPC, Adam Road Presbyterian Church, managed to put it together at such short notice. Thank you all who worked so hard to make it possible. So I want to thank my team, my tech team, beginning with Pastor Joe, Clarence, Kiguan, all of you who have made it, and behind the scenes, the unseen heroes who are putting this together. And she goes on. Yesterday, I read in a very huge uh, doctor's chat group that some of us doctors are wondering if church leaders would consider cancelling services for two weeks to practice social distancing and help give the healthcare sector a breather. As I read that, I prayed for ARPC leaders to have wisdom to decide, just as I needed wisdom to decide whether to attend Saturday service and stay for the prayer meeting. And then I heard the good news that we had decided to suspend our services. I transferred my membership to ARPC in 2003, Pastor Chris, just in case you've forgotten, the year we had SARS. I recall being very touched when a church member in my Just for Newcomers group gave me a box of surgical masks when she heard I was a doctor. I was new to the church. She didn't know me well. She had just bought the masks and she felt I needed them more than her because she realised, she got to know me and realised I was a doctor. I recall you were on trip to Australia for a conference and you later told us you tried to find N95 masks there as much as I could but I didn't find any to bring home here. Today, I'm in a different discipleship group and I'm similarly grateful for the love and prayers of my DG mates. Yesterday, the Ministry of Health informed all clinics that there were suppliers with N95 masks, but the distributors they appointed have told us there are no stocks left of the S-size masks for most of us as female health workers. At times like this, I thank God you have always reminded us that our only true security lies in Jesus and Jesus alone. Last week, I received two panicky calls from Christian colleagues, in all their honesty, who had not been in private practice during SARS. One was in the US then, another was just a medical student. And I shared with them that our true security lies in Jesus, not in masks. And that is the fine balance that we have. And that is why we are doing what we do, making the decisions that we make, sending out the advisories that we send, because our faith in Christ is what will get us out of the circle and the cycle of death. Death has come knocking at the doors of the human race. Genesis 5 tells us so. And then he died, and then he died. But God in his love has sent Jesus as the life giver. To him we turn. And so we're going to rise. Maybe you want to rise in your homes or sit as you sing our closing song. The closing song that we taught during our offering time, the closing song that Doris and our musicians led us in. One Life, written by our church member, Joel Novaro, in gratitude and remembrance 
in honour of all who had suffered and died from this COVID-19, beginning with the doctor who was called the whistleblower. And we now want to dedicate this song and remember all those who have been infected, all those who have lost loved ones. And in Singapore, our special prayers go out to those who are at the forefront as healthcare workers, nurses, paramedics, and doctors. Let's stand and sing this together. You and you alone are our life giver, Lord Jesus. O Spirit of God, take the word of God to enlighten us, enlighten us to humility, saving us from pride. And so we thank you for this message, this sobering message. We live and then we die. That death comes knocking on our doors because we have proudly rebelled against you. 
And no matter how much we try to cover up, we are all on the slippery slope of sin and sickness, of decay, disease, and finally death. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that in your unchanging love, you gave your Son, and the life-giver has now come knocking on our door, offering us a life of faith, a life of obedience, an eternal life, cancelling your wrath, reversing our death, forgiving our sin. To Jesus' return, asking that we be used as your instruments in every area of life. And our prayers and our hearts go out to those who have, been, who have lost loved ones. We ask, O oh Lord, that you raise your, your people around the world, beginning with Wuhan and Hupei and China, to bring the glorious good news of Jesus that gives us eternal hope in eternal life in Jesus and Jesus alone. We pray for our own nation of Singapore, for those who have been infected and are fighting for their lives, the critically ill, that our prayers will go out to them and be with them. For Grace, Assembly of God and the church clusters, for Pastor Wilson and the congregation, we pray for an extra dose of your courage, of your wisdom, that they will come out of this together with us as the Church of Singapore, closer to you, deeper in our love for you and for each other, stronger in our witness, braver in our lives. And for all our personnel, beginning with our paramedics and nurses and doctors, we ask for courage, for protection, and we ask for their families not to, for them and their families, not to be discriminated against, not to be ostracized, simply because they are in uniform. We pray to go forth and be a shining light of embracing them, loving them. And through all of this, guide us. We pray for all decisions, and though we may not all agree whether we should keep our services, suspend them for a while, we are all agreed that we are in Christ Jesus. And we ask this in His name for your glory. Amen.